One of my favorite topics to study, to think about, to bask in is the Holy Trinity. And anything that gets me close to thinking about, studying about, talking about the Trinity is a great joy to my heart. So we're not going to go completely into the Trinity this evening, but we're going to look at one of the members of the Holy Trinity, and that is the Holy Spirit. And we're going we're to ask ourselves the question, who is the Holy Spirit and why is He important? And so that's the first reason for the topic this evening. I've sort of batted around several of them the last couple of days. But also I noticed from, from what these various brothers have been talking about, that much of what they're saying is directed right at your hearts, right at your life as young Christian men and women. And there has been plenty of opportunity, whether you recognize it or not, for you to do serious business with God. And in this dispensation of time, the member of the Trinity with whom you have or should have the closest relationship is God the Holy Spirit. So my prayer this afternoon has been that he will deal with each of you according to his will and according to your need. So we're going to talk. I know that I will not get finished with what I have here. I've put together some slides this afternoon to try to keep a little more on track, but we'll just go until the time runs out and see how far we get. We won't develop a lot of, of subjects completely, but we will at least, in my strategy at least, at least cover enough subjects to give the Holy Spirit some ground to work in your hearts. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we come this evening with a desire to exalt your glory, to hold you high, Father, to magnify your name in the hearts of these young people. Son of God, we tend, tend to do that by honoring you and the work that you have done upon Calvary, and especially, dear Lord, by returning to your Father and sending to us this precious Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you work in the hearts of every person here this evening? Would you work your will and have your way with each of us? Cause our hearts, dear Lord, Holy Ghost, cause our hearts to be open and honest with you that you might be open and honest with us. And we'll thank you and praise you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this evening, throughout our lives, and most blessedly forevermore. In Christ's name, amen. So who is the Holy Spirit and why is he important? We're going to try to work our way through these points, and we're going to try to do it very quickly. We're going to look at the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, that Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is life-giving. 
The Holy Spirit is meant to direct our lives. The Holy Spirit's ministry is word-centered. The importance of being correctly related to the Holy Spirit. The detrimental effects of carnality and then dealing with carnality in our lives. I look for an image of a chipmunk or something to put up here to kind of convey that we're going to bite off more than we can chew, but that's okay. We'll, we'll see how far we get looking at this outline. First, oh, first, the one topic that I don't have up here is the fact that the Holy Spirit is the architect of the church. And the reason I don't have that is because, number one, I would get too off on, on that subject. That's one of my favorite subjects in Scripture regarding the Holy Spirit. And number two, I don't want to think about the Holy Spirit tonight in, in broad terms that apply to a whole bunch of people. I, I want each of these bullet points to apply to you specifically. So we'll leave that for another time and, and maybe another pastor. The Holy Spirit is God. He is co-equal with the Father and the Son in the Holy Trinity. You can very confidently say that anything that can be said about the Father or the Son in terms of their essence and their character can be said about the Holy Spirit as well. I have a prejudice, and it has no reflection on the song that you just sang, but I have a prejudice that goes like this. So often people like to characterize the Holy Spirit as the still small voice that spoke to Elijah during, during the confusion of his bipolarity. Number one, the scripture never says that's the Holy Spirit. And number two, to characterize the Holy Spirit primarily by a still small voice is to rob him of a vast expanse of his character. He is, in, in the book of Acts, like a rushing mighty wind. He is as powerful, he is as omnipotent, he is as omnipresent, he is as omniscient, he is as omnisapient as God the Father is and God the Son are. He is co-equal with all of the characteristics of deity. Let me give you just two, two items here about why he is so important. Number one, it is only through the Spirit that we can confess Jesus Christ. A confession of Jesus Christ that is simply based on emotion or terror or fear that has no Holy Ghost motivation is not an adequate confession. It is only through the Holy Spirit. I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Number two, it is only, ah, typo. Only by him can we know the deep things of God. Now, I'm going to save that because we're going to talk about that later. There's a lot more that we can say in terms of description of the Holy Spirit, but I don't know that there's anything much more significant than this to the unbeliever. If the Holy Ghost is not motivating you, if the Holy Ghost is not working in your heart, you will not confess that Jesus is Christ. And as believers, we want to go deeper. I want to encourage you, young people, you always want to go deeper in your understanding of the Scripture and of the God of Scripture. Number two, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. John 14, 15 through 18. Let's look at it. If ye love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. 
even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. The first point I want about the promised Holy Spirit is that he is another comforter of the same type as Jesus. How do you know that? You know that by that word right there. That word in the original language, the root of that word is alos. Alos, A-L-L-O-S. It means another of the same kind. It is not a heteros comforter. He is an alos comforter. He is another comforter of the same kind as Jesus, which only makes sense because as a member of the Holy Trinity, he is of the same essence as Jesus Christ is. Because he is of the same essence, he is another comforter of the same type. If you were a disciple and you were hearing Jesus speak those words, those words would have been a treasure to your heart. If you look at the context of John 14, there's, there's about four thematics, uh, themes that run through John 14, and this is one of them. The fact that the disciples were so terrified that the Lord was going to be leaving them. The other thing we note about the Holy Spirit is he is the spirit of truth. That's important. He's the spirit of truth. He is the spirit of absolute truth. He is the spirit of truth that sets you free. That means that he is a spirit of spiritual liberation. We're going we're gonna to think about that a little bit later if we have time. But this idea of the spirit of truth is the, the fact that he is the spirit of absolute truth. He is the spirit of liberating truth. He is the spirit of illuminating truth. The world cannot receive him. Why? Because it can't see him, neither know him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you. How can Jesus say that? He dwells with you. That's present tense. Because everything that the Holy Spirit is going to be to these disciples and to the church, Jesus already was to them, and he shall be in you. The third point is that Jesus did not leave the disciples or the church alone as orphans. When he says, I will not leave you comfortless, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. They were terrified at that. That was a, a, a sense in their mind of foreboding that they were going to be without their Lord. And he says, no, you won't be without me. In fact, I'm coming to you. The Holy Spirit is promised. Notice verse 16. The Holy Spirit is sent according to this procedure. Jesus will pray the Father and the Father will give the, the uh, Spirit, the Comforter, and he will do so in Jesus' name. Jesus is going to tell them it's expedient that I go away, because if he doesn't go away, the promised Holy Spirit can't come. The Spirit is life-giving. Life-giving. We'll just go to a very um, common example of that. John chapter 3, 3 through 8. You, you're familiar with Jesus' experience with Nicodemus. Jesus answered and said unto Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's one reason those folks in John 14 couldn't see the Holy Spirit. They weren't born again. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Let's draw a few points from there. The Holy Spirit is life-giving. New birth is absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. You cannot be a Christian without being born again. Jesus says it is absolutely essential. This new birth is from heaven. When Jesus says you must be born again, he says you must be born anathen, which suggests a birth from above. It's, it's a birth that comes from outside of us. New birth is the unique and sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is life-giving. This is His work. It is unique to Him. He does this sovereignly. There is a level of divine mystery involved in the new birth, and Jesus speaks about it to us. The wind blows where it will. We can't see the wind, but there are perceptible effects of the wind. You don't know where it comes from or where it is going. A person is born again by the will of the Holy Spirit, and it is very much like the wind. The wind blows where it will. The Holy Spirit moves as he will. We can't necessarily see the Holy Spirit moving, but we can perceive the effects of the Holy Spirit moving. We may not know where it comes from. We may not understand when, it, when it's on its way. We might not even know where it's going afterwards exactly. But the fact of the matter is it is controlled by the sovereign will of of the Holy Spirit. We can extrapolate that into, and I'm going to go into that last category for a moment, the Holy Spirit being the architect of the church. The Holy Spirit, when, when he gives new birth to an individual, he places that individual into the church as it suits his sovereign will. You remember last evening, or maybe it was, maybe it was the first evening, Grant talked about being born again Jesus came unto his own, his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power to be the sons of God, even to as many as believe on his name, and then they were born again, not of man, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. There is a great mystery that has to do with new birth, and the Holy Spirit is right in the middle of that mystery. He is the life-giving power in every one of us. Next point. The Holy Spirit is meant to direct our lives. So Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is life-giving. And the Holy Spirit, at once he has given you life, the Holy Spirit is meant to direct your life. Two verses. Anthony talked about the first one this afternoon. We're going to talk about both of them here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 25. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. There are four very critical points I want from this passage. The first point I want is here, from verse 25a, we live in the realm of the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit. 
We live in a realm that is governed by, that is, that is um, defined by, that is occupied by the Holy Spirit. Just think of this room for a moment. That Here we all are in this room. We're all together in this little realm together. We're all here. That is how it is in the Spirit. The Spirit is also an environment. He is an environment in which people live. We live in the realm of the Spirit. The Spirit is the Lord. We are His subjects, and His realm is our body. Now, we can expand that when we're thinking about the church, but we're not doing that this evening. We're just thinking about us as individuals this evening. The Spirit is the Lord. We are His subjects, and our bodies are His realm. Now, verse 16a, This I say then, walk in the Spirit. That word walk right there is the Greek word peripateo, and it means to just walk around. It means to just walk around with an environment. Right now, I am peripateoing, if that's a Greek word. It, it makes sense for now. That's what I'm doing right now, is I'm just walking around in the environment of this room. I am, this is peripateo. I'm just walking around in this, in this environment, in this realm. That's what Paul is saying right there in, the, in verse 16a, walk in the Spirit. Just walk around. Very, very, very precise language. Walk around in the realm of the Spirit. Verse 25b says, specifically, what am I, oh yes, yes, I'm sorry. 25b says, let us also walk in the Spirit. That is a completely different word. It's the word stakeo. Do you know what stakeo means? It means to walk in locked step. It means to walk in cadence. It's a military term. Have you ever watched um, at the actual Tomb of the Unknowns, or have you watched a YouTube video of the changing of the guard, and you've watched those guards? Those guys breathe, blink, jiggle their fingers, move every muscle in unison. They are walking stakeo. They are in lockstep with their commander. The Apostle Paul is telling us that we live in the realm of the Spirit. As we walk around in the realm of the Spirit, this is not just some loosey-goosey, ad hoc, walk around, do whatever you want to do type of thing. It is a walk that is stokeo. It is walking in lockstep with the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit leads us, where He directs us, that's what we are to do, that's where we are to follow. We are never to walk out of sequence with the Holy Spirit. Remember what we said initially, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is always going to walk in truth, he is always going to direct us into truth. Now, here's where people really get all, all wrapped around the axle, right here. Verse 16b. Verse 16b says, Ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If ye walk in the Spirit, if you walk in the realm and you walk stakeo in lockstep with the Holy Spirit, ye will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I'd just like you to ask yourself before the Holy Spirit if you really believe that. 
Is it possible that Christianity can be that simple? Are you sure there's not something else that you need to contribute to the ministry of the Holy Spirit? I mean, after all, this is the 21st century, and uh, the Bible's kind of an old, archaic document. Can we really be led around by a ghost? Is the Holy Spirit a ghost, by the way? He's a spirit. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm laboring this point because this is just plain, simple, straightforward, God-breathed, inerrant Scripture. If you walk in lockstep with the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There is no other promise in Scripture like that. There is nothing that says, in case you don't want to walk in lockstep with the Spirit, you, you'll be able to, to, to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Yes? You can't sin. You cannot walk in the Spirit. You cannot walk stokeo with the Spirit and sin. You can't do it. Because why? Because the Spirit is not going to lead you over the cliff like that. We have to have that kind of faith in God that we can say, yes, I believe that. Now, I've lived long enough to know that for me, believing this is not as hard as always doing this. Walking in lockstep with the Spirit is one of those aspects of sanctification. You, just, you don't just have a new birth and then automatically in every aspect you are walking in that lockstep with the Spirit. That takes growth. That takes development. You're, you're, going, you're going to find um, episodes in life that you've never encountered before. And you may make some missteps until you can stand back and, and talk to the Holy Spirit about it and let Him direct you so that you no longer fulfill that aspect of the lust of the flesh. And I'm advocating very strongly that we take seriously the idea of not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. We're going to get to that in a little bit here, but I, I'm advocating that very strongly. So the Holy Spirit is meant to direct our lives. One passage of Scripture that is important to me is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Verses 19 and 20. And Paul is chiding the Corinthians in that, in that chapter, in that, that context there. And he's, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Why aren't we our own? Because we are bought with a price. That means we're redeemed. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is how we're going to do that. We're going to walk in lockstep with the Holy Spirit who is going to lead us into truth. The Holy Spirit's ministry is word-centered. I want to I camp here a little bit. Kent kind of stole some of my ideas this morning, but I'm going to go ahead and, and just say that I'm, I'm just saying what Kent said this morning. The Holy Spirit's ministry is word-centered. I think this is extremely important because I've seen enough people who say that they are motivated by, guided by, led by the Holy Spirit, and what they say they are led into or guided into has nothing to do with the Word of God. Nothing. 
And I don't think that's the Holy Spirit leading somebody outside of the parameters of the Word of God. Now, let's look at this. I want to tell you that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is truth-based and it leads to the glory of Jesus Christ. We're going to get to that in a moment. Number two, it is a ministry of illumination and liberation. Number three, it always, I should have underscored, bold, put it in different color font, always leads us into a life of righteousness. It's truth-based, and it leads to the glory of Christ. It is a ministry of illumination and liberation, and it always leads into a life of righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 concludes at the end of a, a marvelous chapter. If you are not familiar with 2 Corinthians 3, I would suggest you become familiar with 2 Corinthians 3. The 18th verse said, but says, But we all, that's all of us, with open face, with unveiled face, we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, now listen, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. It's an illuminating ministry. It is an illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we are changed. We are changed into the same image from glory to glory. We're changed into the very image of Jesus Christ that will always lead us to a life of righteousness. The apostle says earlier in that third chapter, he says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, spiritual freedom. Does spiritual freedom contradict a life of righteousness? Spiritual freedom is at least these two things. It is freedom from what we once were, and it is freedom to become something that we could not be on our own. It's a freedom from, and it's a freedom to. You don't ever have to shy away from saying, yes, I support the concept of spiritual liberty. Spiritual liberty is a beautiful thing. Spiritual liberty means that I am not the person I was the day before I gave my life to Jesus Christ. But it also means that I'm more than I was at that time. I have grown. I have been sanctified. I have been matured and developed. And that's still an ongoing process. So when we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's truth-based, it's illuminating, it's liberating, and it leads to a life of righteousness. So now let, we're going get to get into the high cotton here a little bit. It's going to take us a while to get through here. I'm going to read some passages and we're going to what I'm driving at here is I'm emphasizing that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is based on the Word of God. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not this razzle-dazzle, pie-in-the-sky kind of fuzzy thing floating around out here that people make it seem like so often. It is very precise, and yet it's very liberating. Jesus, in the 14th chapter, verse 10 Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. The word for word is rhema. 
I'm going to just give you a small, a short definition. It is a specific utterance of God. Go ahead and look at 4487 sometime in your concordance. We're talking about a specific utterance from God. Oftentimes, that will be a specific utterance at a time that you need it most. But it is a word that Jesus speaks, and he speaks it with the authority of the Father. That's the first point I really want. The words of Jesus Christ, and, okay, so one more pet peeve of mine, I'm not much for red letter edition Bibles, because I think it leads to a, a false classification of inspiration. But because that's how it was written here, I'll go ahead and, and put it up. All of the words of the Bible are inspired. There is no hierarchy of inspiration the words that Jesus speaks are the words of the Father. If it's even just every rhema that comes from Jesus Christ's mouth, that comes from the Bible, is coming with the authority of the Father. Number two, verse 15. If ye love me, keep my commandments. This is a different word. It's 1785. It means injunctions, authoritative prescriptions, and precepts. Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. I want you to notice the or oops, excuse me. I want you to notice the order there. Love precedes obedience. Obedience is always love based. Jesus is talking about believers here. You don't obey yourself enough into salvation. Let me give you a little hint. You can't do that. You can't be obedient enough. You can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough. Jesus says that very clearly, and obviously he's the master, if you love me, love precedes, then you will keep my commandments. Commandments, injunctions, authoritative prescriptions, and precepts that carry the weight of the authority of God the Father. The same God who met Moses on Mount Sinai is speaking these words. John chapter 14, verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and will love him, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, literally to possess them and observe them. Now, I have a bit of charity at this point right here. I, in fact, I have quite a bit of charity right here. There are people who have not traditionally had the commandments of Jesus, and so they haven't always had the opportunity to keep them. Brother Raymond, you probably deal with people like that all the time. That's correct. So I'm not saying that God grades on a curve, but I'm saying that there is, there is some very tight contextual logic here. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them. Okay, so listen, folks, all of you fit into that category. I don't know all of you in here, but I'm going to reckon that most of you in here have been taught the Bible since you were a little child. You have the commandments, and you have the opportunity to keep them. Jesus is very clear here. In, when, when somebody has those commandments, they are expected to literally possess them and to observe them. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will, keep, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Now Jesus has, has widened. First we were at Ramah. It was, 
It was just a, a specific utterance. Then we were at commandment, and now we are at logos, regarded as the entire scripture. I think Jesus has gone from the smallest to the largest in the, in the logic of what he's saying here in John 14. It's regarded as all of scripture. Jesus is broadening the scope of his word, and Jesus is saying here, and, and really, if, if this doesn't get you excited, that's okay, because it excites me enough. Listen to what Jesus is saying. If a man love me, he will keep my words. Well, we already know that. We, we know that from, from earlier. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Okay, so there's a couple things I want to parse out of that. Same order that we saw before, love precedes obedience. My father will love him. I'm thinking here that Jesus is saying there is a very special type of love. You know, love is not a real simple doctrine in the scripture. You, you can find four or five different classifications of love. I'm saying that Jesus is saying here, this is a specific salvational type of love. My father will love him. And we will come unto him. What, is that, what in the world does that mean? Somebody tell me what that means. Not any of you older brethren. You young folks. What does that mean? That's right. But, what is, but who's we, Caleb? I'm a Trinitarian. That's the Trinity coming. Jesus is saying, my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. When I'm telling you that the Holy Spirit is God, I'm telling you that if you have the Holy Spirit within you, you have, it is, it is analogous to having the entire Trinity within you. The, the Holy Spirit is not, you're not just getting one third of God or maybe less than that. You're not just getting some change that's left over. You're not, you're not just getting some, some down payment. You're not, you're not getting anything that has anything to do with, with less or leftover or, or chump change. You are getting the full power and presence of the Trinity when the Holy Spirit comes in to abide with you. Thank you. Thank you. That, that, just, that just makes me want to jump up and be Pentecostal. <laughs> It's word-based. If, if you have a high regard for the Word of God, if you see the Word of God as, as inspired and inerrant and infallible, in other words, if you recognize that, that all of the Scripture is breathed by God, it is, it is incapable of error, it has no error in it, and you read words like this, and you, and you realize that this is the authority of, of God the Father Himself, this is really exciting news, folks. Really exciting news. Because we are, if I can say this without, without getting too abstract, we are being caught up into the life of the Trinity, okay? When, when we're talking about, about the Spirit of God indwelling us, we're talking about getting caught up into the very life of the Trinity. I don't remember if I put that slide in there or not, but, but man, that's exciting. Next one. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the fathers which sent me. This is a very strong phrase. If you look in your strongs, this word not is an absolute negative. Absolutely. He that loveth me not, he that absolutely does not love me, keepeth not my sayings. He that absolutely does not love me, absolutely does not keep my sayings. It is a very negative, absolute negative statement. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the fathers which sent me. Extremely important that you examine your hearts 
extremely important that you honestly don't ask don't ask your friend necessarily you ask the Holy Spirit where you fit in these in these scriptures the ministry of the Holy Spirit is word-centered now I kind of apologize for these next two because they're kind of busy but I want I want you to get this okay John chapter 14 16 and 17 and then 26 I will pray the Father, and he will give you this alos comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Okay, bask in that, brothers and sisters. Bask in that. The Holy Spirit is sent to abide. He is sent in, 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 in permanence. He, Jesus was here for a little while and then went back home. He sent the Holy Ghost, and the mission of the Holy Ghost is to abide forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Okay, we've already been over that. It's, it's another comforter of the same kind. He's the spirit of truth, and he shall abide in you. Verse 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall what? Teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, I like words, and I like word studies, and I'll tell you some words that frustrate me. Right here. Things. Things. What does that mean? That's one of those things that bugs me. I'd like to know what he means when he says things. He shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance. I am satisfied to say that things is a technical theological term that I don't really know exactly what it means. <laughs> but Jesus and Paul use it over and over again in this context. He'll teach you all things. That tells me it's a wide scope of subjects. He will bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now let's go to John 16, 13. This, this is a crucial passage for a couple of reasons. It's Trinitarian. It's beautifully Trinitarian. And it's also very practical. Okay? Now we've skipped from the 14th chapter to the 16th chapter. How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, see, Jesus keeps calling him the Spirit of truth, when he, <clears throat> excuse me, when he has come, he will guide you into all truth. If you pray, Holy Spirit, please guide me, and you have some preconceived idea of where you want him to go. You know, sometimes we pray that way, right? Lord, please bless my plans. Well, Lord's not always going to do that. The Spirit of truth is going to guide you into all truth. And I would give you this encouragement. If you need something to study sometime, just study the New Testament doctrine of truth and everything that truth is and will do for you. It was so important that this same apostle could say late in his life, he has no greater joy than what? Children are walking in truth, which is prima facie evidence that they're walking what? According to the Spirit. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. Notice this. He won't, the Spirit will not speak of himself. That doesn't mean he's shy. It doesn't mean he's socially maladjusted. It doesn't even mean that he's quiet. It means that there is an economic 
order within the Trinity, a functional order within the Trinity. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Verse 14, he shall glorify me. He shall make me glorious. How? Because he will receive of mine and shall shew it unto you. Here's that technical term again. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall shew it unto you. Is that, is that progression clear? This, this is a very beautiful progression in the scripture. Remember back earlier in John 14, Jesus said that the words that he speaks... The, the, they, those are actually the words of the Father. So let's go from words to things. And so, and so what Jesus is saying here is here is the Father. And the Father has these things. Whatever they are, they're important. Father has them. Father gives them to Jesus. These things. And Jesus gives them to the Holy Spirit. And these are, these are things. And those things the Holy Spirit gives to each one of us, let me just say generically, gives them to the church. These are the things of the Trinity. Consistently coming from the Father. Okay? Nicole, why are you laughing at me? Just because I'm not as artistic as your dad doesn't mean that I can't express thoughts graphically because he's visual and he needs that. So, so what we're seeing here is that when Jesus says, you need, you need to take heed to my rhema, you need to take heed to my commandments, you need to take heed to the logos, because all of them come with the authority of the Father, he is now emphasizing that even more strongly, that these things that come to us from the Spirit actually come from the Son and ultimately come from the Father. We have, again, the movement and the participation of the Trinity in the person of the Holy Spirit in this Word-centered ministry. Can I even get a Mennonite amen out of somebody? <laughs> amen, thank you. That's all right. Okay. Yeah, you did. Okay, I apologize in advance for this one. We're, not, we're going on now to the uh, next topic, and that is the importance of being correctly related to the Spirit. And here, young folks, is where I, I really start to get serious about the topic this evening, because I think this is extremely important for you. And I, I'm especially thinking about the context of our discussion this afternoon in terms of music and the discussion about media and the discussion about moral purity. I'm not going to ask anybody to try to read this. I'm going to read it for you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, okay? And it starts at verse 9 and it goes to chapter 3, verse 4. One of the most misquoted, misconstrued, and lamentably unapplied passages of Scripture, okay? Amen. Thank you. We're going to make a GB out of you yet. But as it is written, okay, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Let's turn out the lights and go home. We can't know anything. Our, our eyes can't see it. Our ears can't hear it. Our heart can't conceive it. What do we do? We go to verse 10. 
Don't ever stop at verse 9. If you hear anybody stop at verse 9, you don't have to stand up and tell them that they're not preaching correctly. All you need to do is know in your heart that they're not preaching correctly. Verse 9, <laughs> verse 9 is not the end of the story. In fact, it is the glorious prelude to the story. But God hath revealed them. What has he revealed? What are them? Look at this word again. Things. And them. This is technical. This is important. God hath revealed those things unto us by his spirit. Okay, your eye can't understand it. Your ear can't hear it. Your heart doesn't conceive it. But God has revealed those things unto us by his spirit. Why? How? Because the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. I want to tell you, just hold on a second. Okay, I'll, yeah, let's just do it while we're, while we're here. This word is very, um, is very um, graphic in the Greek. Right here, searcheth. It, it carries the connotation of a professional investigator, someone who researches, someone who digs deep. I want you to see the picture of the Holy Spirit of God searching, going deep into the things of God, dig, digging deep into the deep things of God. We may not be able to understand them. But the Holy Spirit does. He, he is like a professional investigative researcher. That's literally what that word is talking about. God has revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him. Okay, let me tell you what that means. So let's, let's say that I'm talking to Russell, and, and Russell, Russell says, you know, I'm starting, you know, I'm, I'm getting close to 60 years old, aches and pains. And, and, and I said, yeah, I know I've got arthritis in my thumbs and, and, and Russell said, yeah, my back hurts. We can relate to that. Okay. That's, that's what he's talking about here. What, what, what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit of man, which we can relate man to man. Okay. I have a dog and that dog and I are really good friends. He comes in about every morning to my study, and we, we like each other, and we do stuff together. And he's always my friend, and he's just as friendly as he can be. But he doesn't have a clue what's going on in my mind. Why is that? Because the spirit of that dog, no matter how intelligent that dog is, that dog can't know up from dog to man. Okay? That's what, what, what's being said here. Russell and I, were men. We can talk back and forth to each other. I'm sure that that dog and another dog can talk to each other somehow, uh, kind of rudimentary, but, but that's because it's the, it's the spirit of two animals. What man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man. Why? Because no man can naturally know up. Okay? You can't, you can't take that. That's a, that's a quantum leap in, in intelligence and insight that you can't take as a natural man. It, it cannot happen. Even so, the things of God, there it is again, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. How does the Spirit of God know it? Because he doesn't have to know up to know the things of God the Father. They are of the same essence. The church fathers taught us that back in the, in the 300s. They are of the same essence. They are the same usia. They are the same essence, the same nature. The Spirit doesn't have to know up to be able to plumb the depths of the things of God. Now, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. 
Folks, let that light your fire. That is a beautiful statement. Now we have received not the spirit of the world. Paul talks about the, the spirit of the world in, 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 in Ephesians, that we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, what? The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. But that's not us. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, who is of God. The spirit here who can search the deep things of God, the spirit of truth, the one who's going to guide us into all truth, show us things to come, glorify Jesus and show us the things. Here we go. The things that are gratuitously given to us of God. They are granted to us. They are a favor to us. They are a gift to us. I'm telling you that if you are not searching the scripture and trying to find out more about these deep things of God, you are despising one of the greatest gifts that God has given to you. Verse 13, which things also we speak, there's that things again, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. I don't know what you brethren make out of that, but I'm going to tell you what I make out of that. We are to convey the word of God in spiritual terminology. We are not to try to convey the word of God in humanistic, culturally acceptable terminology. In other words, if somebody stands up and says, the Holy, the Holy Trinity is like, turned off, because you are about to hear heresy. There is nothing that you can compare the Holy Trinity to. The Holy Trinity is like the Holy Trinity. And that's all there is to say about it. The Holy Trinity is like nothing else. Paul is saying we use spiritual terminology. Now, here's verse 14. This is really what I'm driving at. Verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Classification number one. Remember, we're talking about the importance of being correctly related to the Spirit of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are what? Spiritually discerned. Remember Jesus said that the world will not, will not be able to understand the Holy Spirit, won't be able to see the Holy Spirit, won't be able to listen to the Holy Spirit because they don't have the Spirit of God and they have the Spirit of this world. We don't have the Spirit of this world. We have the Spirit of God. The natural man is an unconverted man who cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritual, they're foolishness because they're spiritually discerned. An unconverted man can't know up. He can't know up to the things of the Spirit. First classification. Don't forget that. Natural man. Verse 15. But he that is spiritual, that's category number two. He that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Okay, so out of all of that that I said, what I really want you to understand is that God has given us things freely. And those things are ministered to us by the Holy Ghost. But even more than that, I want you to understand the first class of men is natural men. The second class is spiritual men. And now let's look at the remainder of that passage. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. That's the third category of man, carnal, carnal Christian. Does that sound like an oxymoron? It's not. Corinthians were carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Is there anything wrong with being a babe in Christ? 
Oh, wait a second. We got no and yes going on here. Um, being a baby in Christ is okay until it's not. Okay? So, so when Raymond works with somebody in Asia, and that person doesn't know Sikkim from Gideon about the scripture, doesn't know anything about the gospel, Ray, Raymond teaches him the gospel, the spirit of God works on that man, and that man is converted, that man is what? He is a babe in Christ. But when you have somebody who has, who has theoretically walked with the Lord for 10, 20, 30 years, and they still are exhibiting the, the, the traits of a babe in Christ, that is not okay. That's what Paul is saying right here. We have another scripture. Um, is it Hebrews 6? When for the time you should have been teachers, you have need that someone teach you what be the first or principles of the oracles of God? Something like that there. It is not okay to be a babe in Christ when you should be mature in Christ. Paul says it right here. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you are not able to bear it, neither yet are ye able. Now, now listen where I'm going with this. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and what? Walk as men. What kind of men? Carnal. Ah, natural men. Carnal men walk like natural men. Carnality of, can, can, can appear, can present itself just like an unconverted person. For a while one saith, I am with Paul, and so forth. Okay. The Spirit explores the deep things of God. Jump on that promise, young people. The Spirit of God, you, you say, oh, God's too far away. I, 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 I can never really get to him. It's just like he's abs. No, he's not. The Spirit of God knows all about the, God the Father. Tap into that. There are things that are freely given to us of God. Get a hold of those things. But the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you're correctly related to the Spirit. So this passage identifies three classes of men. Carnal. Incorrectly related to the spirit. Natural, not related to the spirit. Spiritual, correctly related to the spirit. That's three classifications, and those are extremely important because of what we're going to talk about next. The detrimental effects of carnality. Romans chapter 8, I have 8, uh, verse 1 through 8 up there, but I only have 4 through 8 up there for space. Uh, just a second. Eh. Okay. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. I think all of us are familiar with the first part of Romans 8. Therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after flesh but after the Spirit, and so forth. Okay. Verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Where have we talked about the righteousness of the law before? Malachi, very jealous of the righteousness of the law. The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That sounds to me like the righteousness of the law, which is God's goal, the righteousness of the law is going to be fulfilled in those who are spiritual, those who are in that category of spiritual men. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. Okay? They that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Here's the general principle that you should grasp from verse 5. You will mind the things that you are after. 
you will expend mental energy, you will expend the resource of time and money to pursue the things that you're after. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. I'm going to go back to that passage in Ephesians that talked about how we are outside of Christ. We walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. It, what I want you to visualize from that verse is, is, is Satan as this master puppeteer. And he is pulling the strings on all of these people who are outside of Jesus Christ. He is directing them. He is the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. Have you ever talked to somebody unconverted and they say, I'm free. I, I do. I do whatever I want. I'm a self-made man. I'm, I'm a liberated woman. I'm yada, yada, yada. No, they are not. They are in bondage. Have you ever felt envious of those people? There's no reason to feel envious of somebody who's in bondage. Outside of Jesus Christ is not freedom. It's bondage. Verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. The implication is they can't fulfill the righteousness of the law. They that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death. Wow, that seems kind of um, austere. To be carnally minded, you mean to be a carnal person is death? To be a natural person? Yeah. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. How much money do you need in your bank account to buy life and peace? Can't do it, can you? You can't. People try it all the time. They won't do it. Carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. I, I'm just going to take this at face value. I know we can get into all kinds of theological arguments here, but this doesn't say that carnally minded leads to death. Carnal mind, carnally minded is death. You are, regardless of what, what we might think, that wording is telling me that if I am carnally minded, I am walking in death. But to in, be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind, okay, grasp this. The carnal mind is enmity against God. What does that word mean? Are you a friend or an enemy if you are at enmity? Enemy. How's that going to do for you? That is a non-habit forming place to be right here. Enmity against God is a terrible place to be. The carnal mind, he says, is enmity against God. Three classes of men. Natural, carnal, spiritual. This is telling me that the natural man and the carnal man are in a very bad place. There is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, and I'm saying this with emphasis and charity, to be, a, to be a man of a carnal mind, to be a man of a natural mind, is not only morally deficient, because you cannot fulfill the righteousness of the law, but it is a place of enmity against God. If you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. You're enmity against God. That, that's detrimental to me. That is not a good place to be. And I, you need to ask yourself, really, seriously, young people, you need to ask yourself before God, where do you fit? Where do you fit in that taxonomy of spiritual man, carnal man, natural man? Because if we go on with this a little bit, 
if we go on with this a little bit, we recognize that this is a very bad place to be because if you, if you integrate Romans 8, 4 through 8 with 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 3, 4, you recognize that it is possible for carnal people to present according to this scheme right here. Could, is it really possible? Well, if you walk as a natural man, and, and this is descriptive of a natural man versus a spiritual man, if you walk as a natural man, you are going to exhibit these characteristics. If, if, if you're filling your mind with carnality, if, if, all, of your, if all of your hopes and, and aspirations in life are for carnal gain as opposed to, to work in the kingdom of God, if, if all you want is more money and a bigger bank account and all of those things and, and fancier vehicles and, and, and your, your just mind is characterized by carnality, but you say, but I'm a born-again believer. That's like saying a square circle. It, it, it's just mutually exclusive. You can't do it. By, by the Word of God, you can't do it. And the Spirit of God is not leading you into that. So now let's think about dealing with carnality. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if we live after the flesh, we shall die. Ye shall die. For as many as are... Wait a second. So you live out of flesh. For if we live out of flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. I want to tell you, young people, you do not owe anything to the flesh or its carnal desires. That's what Paul is saying right here. We are debtors not to the flesh. You don't owe anything to the flesh. And I would say to the young parents in this room and to the would-be young parents in this room, when you raise your children, you don't owe them anything that has to do with the flesh or carnality. I have heard this ever since I had children. Oh, oh, you can't do that. You can't homeschool them because you're going to, you're going to they won't socialize correctly and they're going to miss out on team sports or they're going to miss out on this, that, the other that's okay with me if they miss out on that. Why would I not want them to miss out on that? We do not owe anything to the flesh. Flesh, carnal, carnality, they all come from the same root word. The Bible tells me that we owe nothing to the flesh, to live after the flesh. There is no necessary compulsion to live after the flesh. God does not save us to kill us. He does not want us going that direction because these, these are really, in a, in, a, in a larger context, these are four propositions that, that we fleshed out. We do not owe anything to the flesh or its carnal desires. Number two, if we live after the flesh, we will die. Number three, however, and this is beautiful, if we mortify the deeds of the body, we will live. What does the word mortify mean? Chrislin, tell me. What does it mortify mean? Dead. Kill. If you look at your dad's hog records, you'll see that he has a, a, a mortality rate. Now, how many pigs die compared to how many pigs live? Mortification means to kill. Real simple. Nothing complex about to understand this. Kill the deeds of the body. Simple as it gets. Kill the deeds of the body. If you kill the deeds of the body, you will live. And we, and we could go on and develop that, and, and, and we have in the past, in, the, in a series we did, mortifying the deeds of the body, killing the deeds of the body, 
that will bring life. Number four proposition, being led by the Spirit demonstrates that we are the sons of God. I have just one more slide, and I'm not even sure what... It... Oh, okay, yeah, 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 okay. We're still dealing with carnality. What I'm trying to say, young people, is that you don't want to be carnal. You want to be rightly related to the Spirit of God so that He can lead you into the deeper things of God. You want to be rightly related by being spiritual. You don't want to be incorrectly related by being carnal, and you certainly don't want to be unrelated by being natural. I'm telling you that there is great danger in carnality. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9 through chapter 3, verse 4. The, 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 the person who is not spiritual, the person who is either carnal and or or, or natural, they cannot be correctly related to the Spirit of God. That, that's a terrible place to be, young people. I want you to really ask yourself before the Holy Spirit, ask yourself when you lay down tonight, ask yourself with the Word of God in your hand, where do I fit on that spectrum of people? How well am I related to the Holy Spirit? Mortification. Suggested mortification strategies, okay? The first one is what I call the mental subjection component. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Okay? Some of the, Paul says there are some who, who think we war, though we walk in the flesh, we war not after the flesh. Weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Mental subjection component. That means in simple terms, when carnal thoughts start to come in your mind, when, when, when you are, are starting to be tempted by lust, when one of your friends is suggesting that you go and do something, look at something, listen to something, participate in something that is carnal and wrong, your mind has got to be disciplined enough to bring that thought into subjection to the obedience of Christ. You have to arrest that thought. You have to bring that thought into subjection. It is a mental thing. Because where did we say the realm of the Spirit is? It's in our bodies. Where is the realm of spiritual warfare? Right here. Right in there. For some of us, the battle is small because there's not much there to work on. <laughs> I want to make a point here. And, and it's a, I may be taking this out of context, which I try to never do except on this one. <laughs> Paul says that we pull down strongholds, okay? A stronghold is like a fortress. I want you to think of a fortress in your mind. Do any of you, you don't have to answer out loud, but do any of you have some cherished little behavior or some cherished little thought that you have in your mind and, and you, when you sing, I surrender all, what you really mean is I surrender all except that. It's a stronghold. It's just something that you either don't want to or you just can't get past. Think of that as a stronghold in the landscape of your mind. I can guarantee you that didn't start as a stronghold. 
that started as what I would consider a toehold. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27 says what? Any of you young folks know that? Neither give place to the devil. Place in the original language is topos. What, what do we do with topos in English? Topography, that's right. A little toehold, a little topography. Neither give topography to the devil. I'm saying that a toehold can turn into a stronghold. And it doesn't take long. And it can be very nuanced and very subtle. And, and all of a sudden, you have the devil in your mind in a fortress, a mental fortress. Here's an example, Hebrews 12. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Hey, this is a big deal. Failing of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness, just a, just a little, bitter, little uh, root of bitterness springs up, and it troubles you, and thereby many be defiled. So, you have feelings against somebody. It's not a big deal, but you've got feelings against them. I mean, they're, they're kind of twerpy, you know, and they say really dumb things about you in front of other people, or whatever. Not a big deal. You probably ought to go talk to them about it, but they're, they're kind of, um, the way they are, they won't get it anyhow. So you'd, and that thing just starts to grow. And don't tell me that this doesn't happen. This happens. You know what happens. I know what happens. Just grows a little bit. And pretty soon, when you see them at church, you're kind of going the other way around them. And then pretty soon, you see them at a young folks gathering, and you think, you know what, I think I'll, I'll head over to In-N-Out and get a hamburger, because I really don't want to be around this person. And you may not say that to yourself, but that's what you're doing. And, it, and what's going on inside of you is spiritual cancer, or, or more appropriately, is spiritual construction. And the devil is building a stronghold in your mind. And pretty soon, now this person's not just an annoyance. You can't stand them. In fact, you're starting to get bitter toward them. I've lived long enough, and a lot of these people, men and women in this room have as well, to realize that happens. And before you know it, the devil's got a stronghold. And you are thinking in a carnal manner. Do you ever, do you ever think of it that way? When you have something like that against somebody else and it's, and it's grown to the point of a stronghold, you, you are just as carnal as the person out there drinking beer. It's mental carnality. And I'm saying you've got, to get, you've got to get into this mode and you've got to bring that thought and that stronghold into subjection, into the uh, subjection to the obedience of Jesus Christ. You've got to filter that thought through, the, through the, the, the truth into which the Holy Spirit leads you. And if you think, oh, I don't, is that really bad? You ask the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you if it's as bad as you, th as you think it is. And he will show you that. Number two, strategy to mortify the flesh. The attack component. Now, we know what that is, right? Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 and 30. You know, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. If your hand offends, you cut it off. What I'm saying is, if you've got something that is, that is leading you into carnality, if you're saying, I'm strong enough that I don't need to put a filter on my phone or my computer, because after all, that's just a crutch, and I'm spiritual, and I don't need it, but, but three times a week, you're off there in the dark looking at pornography, I'm telling you, rip that computer out of your possession. Get it out of there. That's what this is telling us. 
If your eye offends you, if your hand offends you, you've got to attack that sucker and get it gone. Mortification. You're killing something. There are times when you just have to do that. I started taking drugs the summer I got out of sixth grade. That was a long time ago, and that was when drugs, that's when they used to show uh, videos at school of somebody smoking marijuana, and they'd look in the mirror and they'd see a werewolf, you know, hallucinogenic marijuana. I smoked a lot of marijuana, and I never had hallucinations. That was back then, and they were trying to scare people. And I took drugs until about a week or 10 days before I was baptized, and I was 23 then. I, I ran around with a lot of really bad people, and I was one of them. My point is this, young people. When I became a believer, for a little while I thought, I need to reach out to my old friends. And I have over the years, but I couldn't right then. I had to rip them out of my life. Why? Because they would have drugged me back in. They would have, they, they'd all, it's all I'd ever known. It's all the only kind of people I'd ever, I'd ever known. Grew up with these guys all my life. Had to rip them off, rip completely out. Over the years, I've started making steps back to them. And I, I felt bad about it, but I couldn't. I couldn't keep going the way I knew I had to go and not do that. Sometimes you've just got to rend the fabric in this attack mode. Number three, and we'll, we'll end with this, is the provision replacement component. Romans 13, verse 14. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ... And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Mortification always happens in the context of sanctification. Whether you're talking about mental subjection or attack mode, really what it all filters down to is provision and replacement. By which I mean, if, if, um, if all you ever had listened to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date us so some of the older ones will understand. If all you ever listened to was Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, and then you stopped listening to Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, but you never listened to anything else, but you had this desire because you like music, I can almost guarantee you that what's going to happen? You'll be right back to Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin. That is not a good way to, to live. If you're going to put something to death, you need to replace it with something spiritual. Replacement, provision replacement. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't make any provision for the flesh. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometime at your leisure, read Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. The Holy Spirit is here, young people. He's in this room. If you're a born-again believer, He's in your heart. And the Holy Spirit is not mysterious. The Holy Spirit is very straightforward. He is sent to us by the Father, through the Son, and He is sent to abide. He is sent to guide us into all truth. He is sent to lead us into the glory of Jesus. If we had the time, we would go to the 8th chapter of Romans, and I would tell you, that He is here to intercede for you in the times of your infirmities. The Holy Spirit is here to move you in the direction of conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to tell you that the best life that you could possibly have this side of glory 
is a life that is lived in the Spirit, in the realm of the Spirit, walking in lockstep with the Spirit, and allowing Him to guide you into truth, into illumination, into liberation, and into a consistent life of righteousness. So who is the Holy Spirit? He is God. He is blessedly God. And why is He important? He is important because He is going to take the things of God and give them to you and transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for just a brief glimpse into the person of the Holy Spirit. Father, there's so much more to say about Him. There's even more to experience about Him. And and my prayer this evening is especially for these dear young men and women that God the Holy Spirit would show Himself strong in their lives. That He would whisper if needed. That He would come alongside to support if needed. And that He would thunder like God Almighty if needed. Whatever it takes to turn our hearts to Him and through Him to You. Thank You, Father, for this day and the Word that we've heard all throughout the day. We look forward to more in the days to come. We ask Your rich blessing upon us this evening, Father, that we might have rest, peace in our bodies and in our hearts. And we love You and we praise You through Christ our Redeemer. Amen.